Welcome to Extra Virgin, a podcast for gourmands who love to travel and travellers who love good food. I'm Natasha Mirosh. And I'm Sam Donsky. Between us, we've toured and tasted our way around more than 60 countries. Join us now as we meet the passionate people who make travelling the world so rewarding and so very delicious. Hello and welcome. Today we're going to visit a culture and a cuisine that I certainly know little about. And that goes for me too. But our guest's new book has certainly inspired me to want to know more about both. Absolutely. And talking about books and cookbooks specifically, Sam, do you have many and what makes you choose to buy one? I have too many and I do love them, but I mostly love cookbooks that are so bursting with photos and stories and ideas that you want to keep them nearby so you can dive into them over and over. So my favourites aren't on a shelf in the kitchen, but in a well-read pile on the coffee table. Yeah, I I like a story. I want to know what inspired the dish, the traditions behind it and something about the author as well. And I do love a beautiful cover. Mm. I've had lots of books, but if I don't use them either for inspiration or knowledge, out they go. Yeah, well, you're good at that. It's I do find that hard, but certainly sometimes our tastes change too. So sometimes a cookbook just has to be decluttered. Mm, true. Well, it was love at first sight for me for a new cookbook that landed on my desk this month. It's called Pawana, Recipes and Stories from an Afghan Kitchen. It has such a gorgeous looking cover and then inside the recipes are really appealing and I loved that there was something to learn There's a lot about the history of Afghanistan and it's told through the dishes themselves often. Yes, today we're going to be talking to Dukane Ayubi, the author of Pawana, who is going to explain how her new book does more than just preserve the recipes of her forebears. Dukane's parents, Zelma and Farida Ayubi, fled war-torn Afghanistan with their young children in 1985 and found themselves eventually in Australia. In 2009 in Adelaide, the family opened a restaurant, Pawana, with the aim of sharing their family memories and giving a more complete picture of the country they'd left behind through its food and customs. Welcome, Dukane. Thanks so much for having me, Natasha and Sam. Well, congratulations on a really beautiful book. Let's talk about the story behind it. Obviously, you were very young when you left Afghanistan, but can you give us an overview of your family history and how they came to settle and build a life in South Australia? So, yeah, I was very young when my family left Afghanistan. I was under one years old. So it was during, so it was the mid-80s, 1985, when my family first left Afghanistan and it was Cold War, which was kind of a battle for power between the so between Soviet Russia and America, and for Afghanistan, that kind of tension played out. So that was a time in the seventies and eighties that many Afghan people were exiled and displaced because of the war. So my family left in eighty five, and first we crossed the border into Pakistan a route that lots of refugees leaving Afghanistan take. And for about a year, we were living in a refugee camp um, in Pakistan. And then from there, we had family, well, family friends um, and distant relatives who were already living in Australia. And we were just really fortunate that we had that connection because we were able to be sponsored out to Australia on a humanitarian visa. And so for two years, when we first arrived, we lived in Victoria. And 
my sisters and I, we were all really young. There were four of us and we were all under the age of 10. So you can imagine what that would have been like for mum and dad, mm. you know, making this huge uncertain move with um, four young children. But we, we made it to Australia against lots of odds. Many of the odds I learned about for the first time, like really talking to my parents in detail about what that journey was like. And, yeah, we eventually, I think my parents found Victoria and Melbourne bigger city, a bit more difficult to get around, and with not much knowledge uh, of how things work here, coming to grasp English um, as a language, that kind of thing, I think they felt like somewhere a bit more mellow, (laughs) (laughs) a bit easier to kind of navigate, uh, was a better place for them first starting out as new migrants to Australia. So eventually we moved over to South Australia, and yeah, my family has lived here ever since. And I guess having come here as such a young child, you kind of grew up between these two cultures. You talk about your family being displaced people. Did you feel like that too? I didn't really know necessarily that I was I was a displaced person. Like that's just not the language you would use, I guess, when you're a kid. But I did know that I was different and that my religion was different and that my cultural background was different. And there were certain things I could or couldn't eat, for example. And I think looking back, it really just made me someone who questions things more and interrogates things. And it really gave me the skills to be able to negotiate those two cultural worlds and find the path forward that mixes together the parts of both of those cultures. I guess today we would call them like an Eastern perspective and a Western perspective how you meld that together to kind of form something that feels much more whole and is an expression of who I am and these kind of two cultures that have really mixed together to create my identity now. I always wonder whether people who have come to Australia later in life, as your parents did, hold on to their culture a little bit tighter perhaps than um, they would at home. The truth is that for people who migrate as adults, the experience of that displacement and the trauma and that kind of thing is really different to what how it is experienced for me and my sisters, for example, as children. You know, I guess the first part of that is speaking to my parents and kind of really understanding what that journey was like and the trauma <laughs> that they had to endure. Like they had a really solid understanding of everything that was being lost. You know, they grew up with an Afghan identity, the best kind of the golden years of what it was to be an Afghan person. They had like connections to their ancestry, their history, their land. You know, they lost those identities when they came over to Australia. And we gained lots of other things, but yes, certainly there was an element of loss that was much more vivid and much more real for my parents as adults than it was for us as children. For us as children, we had that opportunity to build our identities and create our own worlds from a very young age. And we didn't have the same language barriers. And, you know, a lot of that loss that people endure as migrants when they're adults, it can translate into fear and into kind of just wanting to hold on to something that feels familiar. So for us, for example, the way that played out in our family is as you grow up, you realise there's an intergenerational gap that everybody 
would have with their parents and their grandparents, for example, as they're growing up. Mm. But then, you know, add on a intercultural gap as well because our mm. experiences of culture and life um, in Australia were really different. But that's not to say, you know, it definitely had its challenges and I think I talk about that a lot in one of the chapters in the book because I really wanted to reflect on what it meant to be a displaced person and to have these different experiences of displacement even within one family you know I'm really grateful that I have access to my parents knowledge of my ancestry and my history because without it you know I don't think I would really understand who I am as deeply and for my parents likewise they had this capacity to evolve and internally and to understand you know what of themselves they can offer in our new home in Adelaide and we kind of just really melded together uh, those experiences I think to create something that meant something to all of us and I think Parwana our restaurant and our family my family's connection to food is really a manifestation of how those dual experiences can combine to create something new. And Can you explain why it's so important to understand the history of Afghanistan, to understand its uh, cuisine and its its place in the world? Yeah, when I first set out to write this book, you know, I'd never written a book before and I'd definitely never written a book about food or written in detail about food before. But I just had this instinct and something that was really strong within me that I wanted to make sure that to have a conversation about Afghanistan and its food, which so many people love, you know, I wanted to give myself and the people engaging with the book and our food, I guess, a way to engage with it beyond superficialities. And Afghanistan is a country that has been slammed now by decades of conflict. And in the way that our world works, the narratives now associated with Afghanistan are so bleak and they're so violent and they're so alienating to most people. But that's not my experience of Afghanistan and that's not the experience of Afghanistan from all the people who were born there and who trace their lineage there. And so what I wanted to do was say, well, this is a really a slither of the history of Afghanistan. And for us to have a deeper appreciation, to be be able to truly appreciate the food and why it's so familiar and why it's so palatable and so engaging and artistically beautiful and presentable, well, we need to have a much deeper and broader conversation about Afghanistan and its ancient history and the role that it played in creating um, the cultures that now define civilization across the world. And a really big part of that for Afghanistan is where it sits geographically, like at the centre of the ancient Silk Roads, which were the trade routes that were in heavy use throughout the ancient world. And being there at the centre of Central Asia, more or less, uh, it became a hub for this cultural exchange and creativity. And that's reflected in the art of the region, in the food of the region. Food is a proxy, I think, for culture and for that that history. It captures the various iterations of a region's history. It would have been 25 years ago. I was living in London and I, I picked up a book from a secondhand bookshop. I can't even remember what it was about. It wasn't about Afghanistan. Yes. But this 
tourist brochure fell out of the book, this old tourist brochure. It was from the 1960s, I think. And it was just incredible. It talks about all the the amazing tourist attractions in Kabul and, you know, the gardens and all this kind of stuff. And so it was quite sad reading it and understanding that that wasn't what Afghanistan is now, isn't what it always was. I mean, when you think about it being such a huge thing on the hippie trail in the 1960s and 70s, like it was on everyone's itinerary, wasn't it? I know. And we have so many people that come through who are like in their 70s and 80s and stuff now and they're like, I was in Afghanistan (laughs) in the 60s and I was like, yeah, I bet you were. It would have been great. That's wonderful. (laughs) But, yeah, you know, that's a really big part of, you know, it's just there's so many ancient sites there Mm. and there's so many kind of artefacts and that kind of thing and just the history that's unfolded there. And I got such a deeper appreciation for it just researching and writing the book exactly. and I hope that one day it's the kind of place that people will be able to visit because I think it's pivotal mm. in how human story has evolved mm. and for Afghanistan that history is really long and deep and interconnected and beautiful. Can you sum up Afghani food? What, what is it? How do you describe it? It's really familiar but at the same time it's really unique and I think, like I mentioned, because of that cross-pollination of civilizations, there's so many flavors and ingredients in the food that would be familiar to almost anybody in the world. So the staples of Afghan food are things like rice dishes, but rice for us is a really intricate thing. It's always, there's a, several steps to the process of how it's made, and it's always kind of either things are buried inside it, like meat and legumes and that kind of thing or it's topped with really beautiful ingredients as well so visually it's quite stunning and then so with the rice so rice is the centerpiece but then with that rice you'll always have things like curries so lamb chicken goat they're kind of the primary meats uh, in the cuisine and then you'll always have other bit lots of vegetables so lots of seasonal produce in the in the menu so lots of eggplant pumpkin potatoes that kind of thing and we've also got dumplings the chinese influence really comes through in that but the dumplings are kind of adapted to suit the ingredients and the palate of in Afghanistan so it's filled with native leeks and the flavors are quite light and aromatic and then everything's quite saucy so the sauce bases are tomato garlic onion there's always liberal yogurt liberal dairy that kind of thing in our food so the flavors are quite warm in terms of The spices you have in our food are things like cumin, cinnamon, turmeric, things you would typically associate maybe with Indian cuisine, but the amounts used are very different. If I was to open your pantry, what are things that are always in an Afghani's pantry? (laughs) (laughs) There's always rice, (laughs) always. There's lots of dried fruit, which are almost like snacks that you would have for tea and also in that culture of hospitality, there's always just something to offer a guest if they arrive unexpectedly. Uh, there's always lots of tea. Afghans are mad about their tea. And other kind of staples would be lots of nuts. Nuts go with savoury and sweet in Afghan food. So you'll have lots of nuts in um, sweets like shipera or in desserts like vinni, which is like an Afghan custard. But then you'll also have nuts used through savoury foods, like in our rice. 
and i guess lots of just the basics, so things like flour, sugar, that kind of thing to to bake into any breads or or rort, which is like a sweet bread that we make, and lots of spices, cardamom, turmeric, cumin, coriander, aniseed. We we combine all of it to infuse through the food. I think I might have found my perfect cuisine. Yeah. I love all of all <laughs> of those things. Mm. I mean, that explains the the familiarity that you were talking about before. It's, yeah. it's not that those things are, they're not unique. It's the combination, you say, that makes them unique. Absolutely. Mm. Yes. So you know, when we were first starting out at our restaurants and people were trying Afghan food in Adelaide for the first time, so a lot of them, you know, and we got a few like reviewers through who just chanced upon the restaurant and were just blown away by this food and it seemed like they'd had it all before but because of the way it was all put together or the technique that was used to kind of cook those ingredients together it was something they'd never had you know Mm. and so it's kind of like this melding of technique and also portions you know portion control is well we don't really control it (laughs) afghan food and afghan cooking by by tradition is just very intuitive and one of the funny things that we had to do was put measurements around uh-huh. a lot of this cooking, which sounds funny, but, you know, a lot of that kind of traditional cooking is so intuitive and you listen and you look and you smell and and, and that's how you figure out how things are ready. Obviously having a rough idea of portions, but, yeah, it's just the portion, the amount of spices, for example, used, I think are just magical because they create this thing where you can taste each of the flavours mm. and each of the flavours kind of shine, but they're just not overpowering for this food that is just very fragrant and aromatic rather than overwhelming. And Afghan food is always a spread, really. So you have, you would have, on a plate as you're eating, you would have lots of portions of different things like rice and dumplings and fresh vegetables and meats, that kind of thing grows all together to make a meal. And, of course, lots of naans and, and that kind of thing too. Gosh, I wish I'd had breakfast before we spoke to you. <laughs> I'm really hungry now. Sorry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, a couple of things that, that I know about Afghanistan, which is not very much at all, but <laughs> one is that it has a reputation for being a very hospitable culture. And yeah. looking through your book, a lot of the photos are of people eating together. Obviously, shared food is a very sociable part of Afghani life. The other thing that I noticed is that you eat specific foods at certain times of the year That's or right. for certain celebrations. Can you tell us a little bit about how you punctuate the year with these different foods and, and what they represent? Well, to the first point about like the very communal aspect um, and the gregarious aspect of Afghan food, hospitality is a really deeply ingrained part of Afghan culture. And again, it really ties into this transience of people that would have come through Afghanistan at the heart of the Silk Roads. And, you know, there would have been people that either had messages, like philosophical messages of Buddhism or Ashrianism, you know, and eventually the, the world's major faiths as they develop, but they've all kind of transited through there. So, or else there would have been traders, traders that wanted to do business. So people kind of adapted and developed this real sense of hospitality. And I think that's something that lives really strongly in the rituals around Afghan food. 
we prepare foods together. So growing up, I have all these memories of having a meal isn't necessarily just sitting down to eat. You know, there's so many steps preceding it. We made the food together and things like the dumplings, for example, they're quite labor intensive. So everyone would get together and there would almost be like, I guess, a gathering before the actual meal. And that was a huge part of what food meant to us growing up and how we developed and bonded with family and friends and developed our own identity. And that really does trace back to what's ingrained in the rituals surrounding Afghan food. And I love that that lives on really strongly to this day. And the other the question about the rituals, you know, for a lot of cultures, food isn't just about having a meal and kind of getting through the day. Our food is really tied into spirituality and the essence of who you are and how you express yourself in the world. And I guess there's almost an aspect of divinity attached to food and it's always closely associated in afghan culture with blessings and copiousness so every time there is an occasion for example with celebrations of course you know food is a huge part of that celebration and there'd be certain kind of ingredients or certain dishes that are attributed to you know, making an offering uh, in in gratitude of um, a specific time of the year, for example, during Ramadan or during Eid, which is the festival that follows Ramadan. You know, there'll be certain sweets that are a big part of that time of the year. And then, of course, it's also closely associated with rituals of mourning and passing. And it's this really beautiful extension of how you express what it is you're feeling whether that's joy in celebration or mourning in in death. But it's a really grounding and whole way to understand how we're dependent on the fruits of the earth, I guess. We're not separate from them. food to mark occasions and to mark parts of the year and to ritualise is really an expression of our humanness and keeps us grounded and connected to the cycles of the earth and that definitely played a big part in my life growing up you know there were certain dishes we had at Eid and I associate Eid with things like Goshafil which is one of the recipes in the book which is a really simple simple kind of pastry but you know I have I'll have memories attached to that 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 I'll never lose mm. um, and I think that's a really wonderful thing to to carry through into adulthood mm. Did you have a lot of input into the look of the book? Yeah, a lot. Uh, <laughs> My sisters and I were also creatively inclined as it is, and mm. so we had so many ideas around, you know, just wanting to make sure it didn't look too polished and just keeping it a bit earthier and mm. and not so perfect. So all the diary text is my dad's handwriting and, you know, just things like that. And, yeah, we've... Because we're so close to the food, a lot of the propping and stuff will like the food will look best like this and, and for example, things like that. So it was really a very like collaborative experience, which was really nice. Have you been able to visit the, the, your, the land of your birth? Yeah, I was really fortunate. My sisters and I travelled and my brother-in-law and I have a really big family, which is nice. So, <laughs> and a couple of nieces and nephews. We all travelled to Afghanistan in 
2012, and that was the first time any of us had been back um, since my family left in 1985. And so it was really this very, it was a homecoming I didn't expect. You know, I'd lived almost all of my life, well, all of my life in Australia, and same with my sisters, the bulk of our life we lived in Australia. And while we always felt kind of connected to our culture and our ancestry through food and language and our own traditions and that kind of thing, I just felt the experience of actually being on the land where I was born <laughs> was this really shifting and cathartic experience. Mm-hmm. Afghanistan visually is really stunning. The landscape is overwhelming and beautiful. You know, you've got mm-hmm. the Hindu Kush mountains in the background and then these kind of rolling green valleys in the foreground. That's a really beautiful kind of luminescence. We were there in spring, so the light was just beautiful. And I, when I have these memories and when I saw it for myself, I, it just reminds me of how unexpected that was to me. So when you went back, where did you go back to? We went back to Kabul first and we also went to the provinces. So my mum's kind of ancestral village and home and the same with my dad so we went to Jalalabad and to this place called Dari Nur which is like the valley of light which I write about in the book which is just this unreal experience it's almost like if if you had to imagine heaven it would look like that and I'm not saying it to exaggerate because I've traveled a lot (laughs) but it was just this stunning landscape and it just seemed so pristine still um, you saw the violence in the war, especially in Kabul, the poverty, that kind of thing. So I don't romanticise it at all. But I also see the potential of what kind of a place it could have been if it was left to its own kind of intellectual, emotional and spiritual evolution, which didn't happen. But, and I felt really grateful to be there. The people we met were, they just... They didn't have a lot, you know, this is during the, the war has been raging in Afghanistan. So first it was the era of communism, the time my family fled. But for now, for, for years, the war on terror had been unfolding in Afghanistan. So people really didn't have a lot, but still they were so generous and so hospitable and so dignified. And when I saw people, their mannerisms, and when I felt that kind of connection just to the land there, that almost felt so unexplained. I really realised so many things about myself and my life growing up. I connected all these dots of, you know, oh, so this is why, you know, my parents are, you know, have so-and-so mannerisms or this is where this comes from, you know, and it was really this exercise of piecing all these parts of the puzzle together and as a result I just felt so much more whole in my own identity and one day I would love to go back to Afghanistan for uh, maybe a longer period of time just to uh, understand that connection even more to see where the culture is now you know how it's evolved or not because of all these decades of war and to really feel as though in my lifetime I've managed to um, understand how the country's evolved Who's the chief cook in the uh, restaurant? Where are the recipes from? I, I, I think it's your mum, yeah. isn't it? Yes, absolutely. So these are all my mum's recipes. Mm. My mum is Farida and she is a really big part of the restaurants and why this book 
came into being. And the recipes, very old kind of traditional Afghan recipes. And in the book, I write about how for my mum, you know, cooking for her was just something she was naturally inclined towards. Different kids would have different hobbies. Some kids would be, you know, naturally obsessed with a musical instrument, for example, or, you know, a certain sport. For my mum, the way she kind of expressed herself and what she was just attracted to was food and flavours and cooking. And she was, she, her mum passed away when she was quite young. So my grandmother passed away when my mum was just four which was obviously quite sad and devastating. But her siblings and herself, they were raised by their father, who's this larger-than-life figure, and he really encouraged them to follow their passions and to you know, know who they were. And so he encouraged my mum from when she was really small to immerse herself in cooking. So she'd always been sitting alongside the family cook as he was preparing the night's meals or, you know, she'd be allowed in the kitchen when nobody else was allowed in because she really wanted to learn. Mm -hmm. And so she kind of grew up with an understanding of and an immersion within the techniques of traditional Afghan cooking. And that was knowledge she just continued to develop and grow because it's her passion. She loved the cuisine and she loved to cook. Uh, and she was just naturally great at it. And so what happened was by the time we were displaced people living in Australia, she had this understanding and the foresight to know that Afghan culture now after decades of violence and war and with so much of its population just scattered all around the world now living in exile was at risk of all that knowledge was at risk of being lost and so the restaurants were in a huge part motivated by being able to retain and share that knowledge with everyone in our new home. And then I feel like the book is really the next part of that natural trajectory of trying to preserve this ancient historical knowledge of Afghan culture and cuisine and not just preserving it, but putting it into words and pictures and being able to then pass that on to anyone who's interested and to just to have it there in writing. <laughs> what does Pawana mean and is there a story behind the name? Pawana in um, our traditional language, Dari, means butterfly. And it was the name, when we were deciding on a name for the restaurant, we kind of had a few options. And we just loved the way the word parwana sounded. Mm. And a butterfly, you know, I guess, who doesn't love the concept and beauty of a butterfly? Mm. <laughs> and then in the book, I write about how, in hindsight, the word parwana and the name parwana is probably was unforeseeably so apt because for me and for my family, food, parwana, this book, so much of it has been about our own transformation and our own collective metamorphosis. And so a butterfly, I feel, is really symbolic of that moving from one state of being into another. And for us, by staying close to our culture, our tradition, our food, and being able to creatively express and share that, has been a huge part of our transformation. So it's a real family business, isn't it? How are you all involved in the in the running of, of Pawana? Absolutely. It's a family 
business. For us, it just kind of evolved as this natural extension of, you know, what we do at home or with family and friends. You know, we just kind of took that and put it into bricks and mortar and offered it to even more people. So that's really how it started, Kawana. And with my mum's understanding of wanting to be able to do that kind of underpinning restaurant opening and so yes you know the family has been involved all of us in every step of the way um when we first opened you know it was that combination of old and new knowledge that we talked about before of kind of having different roles so my parents with their understanding of afghan culture and my mum's kind of recipes and her her love and passion for cooking and you know that was supported by my sisters and i and our proficiency i guess in australia and being able to navigate you know what you need to do to open up and then in the day-to-day yeah my sisters and i and now my sister's partners, for example, and the kids, so mum and dad's grandkids, everyone plays a role, whether it's, you know, taking on a few shifts a night or whether it's helping in the kitchen. My sister's husband, so my brother-in-law, Saeed, like he plays a huge role in Kawana. You know, he's there and he loves cooking himself and he kind of comes from this background of a family who who loves to cook and make preserves and jams and that kind of thing. And he's, he's a great cook too, mm-hmm. you know, and so he's there in the kitchen with mum every night. You know, so it's definitely a family affair and it's generational now, so no one can escape. All the kids are involved too, which is great. <laughs> mm. When you're talking about your, is it your brother-in-law being in the mm. kitchen with your mother, is that normal in Afghani culture that men cook? Um, yes and no. So... It's definitely normal for, say, my family and my mother's family and for my brother-in-law, Sayyid, his family. So I think there would be some families where it's just, yeah, you know, men and women cook and it's just there's no separation of gender in that. But then there would probably definitely be other families where it's just a traditionally very female And so for me and for us, I guess we're lucky that, you know, the men and women in my family and in, you know, extended family, they all love to cook. And so it does really make for something that involves everyone and not just at the eating stage, (laughs) at the prep and cooking stage too. Yes. And what's your dad's role? So my dad is not a good cook, so it's probably good (laughs) that he's not in the kitchen, but... (laughs) My dad is, he loves Parana and he's definitely a really big part of the restaurants. Uh, he is front of house and he kind of like looks after, he just stays really busy. And my dad's in his mid-70s now and he loves being at the restaurant and meeting and greeting people and anyone who has a question to ask about like Afghanistan or the food <laughs> or the history or the photos on the wall, like my dad is the first one who wants to have a chat with people and explain what Afghanistan is outside of these dominant narratives and to explain, you know, what food means to him and us and us as a family or just to, you know, just to have a chat. Yeah, he loves Prawana. People love speaking to him generally too, which is is really lovely, you know, and it really ties back for me. As a family of migrants, I'm so grateful for 
this for my parents especially because, you know, this has given them a way to express something that is very meaningful to them and it's something that other people can learn about and from them and, and other people love to engage with too and I think it's kept them really young and, and happy. <laughs> That's fantastic to hear. We might end on a sweet note because I have to say mm. that one of the things that is so appealing about the book to me is these gorgeous biscuits and sweets in it. I don't know if it's just my impression that many people in Middle Eastern countries have a natural sweet tooth. Is that true of yes. Afghani people or are these special occasion sweets? No, Afghans definitely love their sweets. A lot of the very traditional sweets would be reserved just for special occasions, just because of the labour that went into them. And of course, we're talking about a time where a lot of these recipes would be things that don't need refrigeration, for example, or, you know, you don't need electrical kind of gadgets and stuff to make them. So they are quite simple, but at the same time, they are reserved. The ingredients and that kind of thing that go into them traditionally would have been a bit pricier, for example. So some of the nuts and, and that kind of thing that you have through the sweets, you know, so they were kind of reserved and also to attribute to like the kind of ritualistic nature of the cuisine. So some things you would make just for meat, for example. But Afghans do love sweets and there's a whole process around having something sweet with tea after a meal, uh, even if it's just something really simple like some dried fruits or kand, which is like sugar cubes or just like a real kind of simple crystallised sweet. Definitely a part of the cuisine to end meals on a sweet note with tea. Do you have a favourite? Yeah, I actually really love the fidmir, which isn't a biscuit, but it's like the it's like a milk custard, and it's just it's got rose water and cardamom and nuts through it, so it's like this just undescribably kind of fragrant and delicious custard. Mm-hmm. Um, and we would make that on like Eid or for birthdays, that kind of thing. And yeah. Mm. Lots of sweet memories attached to it too, so that's my favourite. Mm. I think I want some now. Yeah. <laughs> We're actually going to put up one of your recipes. Oh, great. For, I don't know how you pronounce it, the ketiya? Ketiya? Yes. Ketiya. Yeah, great. Yeah, so the ketiya, they eat biscuits that people have during Eid, which is the celebration at the end of Ramadan. But we can have them just at any time, right? Oh, we can have them any time. There's no taboo. <laughs> they, look, they look absolutely delicious. Yeah, they're, they're very crumbly and uh, they kind of have this powdery, crumbly texture, so they're really lovely. Mm. Oh, well, that's beautiful. Would you like to share uh, where pe- – I know the book is just coming out. Can you share mm. where people will be able to find it? Yeah, sure. The book is out on the 29th of September and it will be available in all bookstores or to order online. Terrific. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. It's been really wonderful to talk to you. I can't wait to try some of the recipes from the book. I'm taking this book away with me on a weekend break today (laughs) and I intend to cook a couple of things at least from it. Amazing. Thank you so much for having me and it's just been really um, wonderful to be able to share, you know, uh, in a bit more detail um, the stories and and why Pawana means so much to us. Thank you. Thank you so much for talking with us Thanks so much, Natasha. And to our listeners, thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate uh, you tuning in. Until next time, bon voyage and bon appétit. You've been listening to Extra Virgin, a podcast for the Epicurious. If you'd like to be part of the conversation, you can follow Extra Virgin Food and Travel on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. 
If you haven't already, go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts and subscribe, rate and leave a review. 